0: The format of this week's episode is going to be a little different. Most of the readings this week come with an incredible amount of information and nuance. Because of one of the main core values of this podcast, I think it's important to explore all of it. That's not to say that I have somehow gathered every piece of possible information on these texts, and neither is it to say I'll be able to express every perspective. But we're going to try. Let me start, though, with the official-ish intro. Postmodern liturgy exists in a couple different forms. This podcast is a chance to reflect on the weekly readings in the liturgical calendar the week before they actually occur. So this podcast comes out on Mondays and uses the readings for the following Sunday. Our distinctive is that we try to apply a variety of postmodern lenses to the text, especially offering space for deconstruction and doubt. I also write and record all the music specifically for this podcast. You can engage in more material at postmodernliturgy.com. You can follow us on social media at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. And if you're so inclined, you can join our wonderful group of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. We have been in the series of Advent. And we've talked a lot about waiting and preparation. It would seem, based on the readings this week, that we're moving on from that toward the birth of the one who would be named Jesus. In some ways, we're sort of hopping over the birth and then coming back to it on Christmas Day. The interesting thing about this week is that several of the passages carry with them some pretty big, let's call them, problems. And they're problems that probably won't be new information to you. That is to say, several of them are already well-known. As I see it, when attention arrives in Scripture, there are generally three responses from Christians. One, we reason our way out of it. Two, we ignore it. Or three, we use it as an opportunity to give up on the whole thing. I am, of course, not the only person doing this, but I refuse to accept those as the only three options. When I first went through the process of deconstruction, I can call it that now even though at the time I had no idea that's what I was doing. But when I first went through the process of deconstruction, one of the main catalysts was basically that I found out people had not told me the truth. In the initial phase it was somewhat silly behavioral stuff like, it is a sin to drink alcohol. At first I said, okay, no problem. Then all of a sudden, wait, why? Well, because the Bible says so. Oh, okay. Wait, no it doesn't. Let me make a long story short. I would come to find out there's all sorts of nuance around that particular topic. Now, I bring this up because once this particular seed is planted, the the seed of untruth, it's pretty hard to not let it spread through the whole field. It's like thistle. You can kill it with Roundup, but you also don't know what other things you're killing alongside it. Maybe slash probably everything. I don't like the roundup solution to Christian theology. Sort of like how I don't like the roundup solution in real life. I like getting it all out there. And the reason is actually because it actually fertilizes growth. So what we'll do this week is, I'll do each reading. Then I will offer some reflections about each reading right after which will be split into two sections, interesting issues and overall takeaway. Then, in the end, I would love to share with you how I approach this onslaught of information and use it for faith formation. I don't think I can tell you how to do it so much as I can tell you how I might do it. I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Liturgy. Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 16. Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of Yahweh your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put Yahweh to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary mortals? That you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child, and shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. some context for this verse in Isaiah, namely, who the heck is Ahaz? Ahaz was the twenty-year-old king of Judah, in the time after Israel and Judah had split. In this particular time, Ahaz was experiencing really shaky conditions to his north. Israel and Syria were facing the expansion of the Assyrians, and put very simply, Ahaz doesn't know who to trust. The Assyrians are obviously a threat. But Ahaz doesn't know who to trust or whether to form alliances or get involved. But the context of this story is actually quite dependent on the verse before what we heard. The end of verse 9 says, If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. So the story that follows is sort of a test of Ahaz's faith. Faith in what? Faith in Emmanuel, that God is with them. So let me pause there and turn to the potential issues found in this text. This passage is commonly referred to as the Emmanuel prophecy. Generally speaking, this is one of the most hotly debated passages of scripture. It isn't the only passage of scripture that was later used to predict the birth of Jesus, but it is one of the foundational passages for that purpose. There are three potential issues with this text, and they all really have to do with us reading this passage in light of portions of the New Testament. So here's issue number one. When the passage speaks of a child being born, there isn't any indication that it's talking about the future. It could refer to a child born in the past, in the present, or in the future. Furthermore, there's some evidence to suggest that this phrase was meant to remind Ahaz of his own birth in the royal line. In fact, the king is referred to as Emmanuel in the very next chapter, Isaiah 8, verse 8. In many ways, the sentiment is still the same. The king in the Davidic line is meant to carry the promise of God's presence with the Hebrew people. Ahaz eventually fails to live up to this expectation, by the way. Issue number two. The woman giving birth to the child is Mary, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. There's plenty of evidence, including biblical passages, that suggest the Hebrew people actually worshipped one which was called the Queen of Heaven. Take Jeremiah 44, 17-19, for example. Another name for the Queen of Heaven is wisdom. This is relevant here because, as Erdman's commentary points out, it would be appropriate to assume the king in the Davidic line was always the product of, to put it simply, the king and the Queen of Heaven. Issue number three. Some translations don't use the word young woman in verse 14, they use the word virgin. Perhaps you've heard the King James Version of this text. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." To be clear, the literal translation should be young woman, not virgin. This quote misinterpretation, as Oxford Commentary puts it, occurred when the original Hebrew was translated into Greek. Even more, it was the Greek translators who applied future language to the birth of this person, where none existed in Hebrew. The literal translation of Alma, the word sometimes translated virgin, probably referenced the social status of a woman, not virginity. There will be more on this issue with the passage in Matthew. Okay, so if these issues are interesting to you, great! I know they are to me. If you're already sick of me poking holes in this story, please hang with me. If I need to say it, I'm not moving towards see This whole thing is silly and untrue. I'm trying, as I often do, to dig through the layers of this in order to find some broader meaning. These issues aren't actually debilitating, but I believe they must be incorporated into the process, if for no other reason than they are readily available to anyone who Googles, for instance, virgin birth. So, let's take the most extreme outcome of all these issues. Either Mary is not a virgin, or this passage isn't even talking about Mary. And also, it's not a prophecy about Jesus' birth at all. How much would that change our overall takeaway? Well, not much in my estimation, because this passage wasn't ever about predictions or virginity. This is exactly why information about scripture can be so shaky. Someone comes along and says, This verse predicts the birth of Jesus and we sort of build our entire theological house on that sand. Then later we find out maybe that's not exactly what this verse was about in context. And the whole house falls? Jesus wasn't the Messiah and wasn't even born. No, everything is not a table leg. Everything isn't the foundation of the house. Okay, so then what is this passage about? Well. Ironically, because it describes Yahweh offering to be tested, this passage is actually about a test of Ahaz. A test Ahaz eventually fails, which was predictable given the tone of the passage. The test was, do you have faith that God is with God's people? Do you have faith that God will keep the covenant God entered into long ago, and that God continues to offer despite it being repeatedly broken on the human end? A has doesn't and the story continues. Psalm 80, verses 1 through 19. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Yahweh, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. But let your hand be upon the one at your right hand, the one whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Yahweh, God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. Unfortunately, there isn't much controversy with the passage in Psalm 80 that I'm aware of. For the record, I read the whole chapter, and the reading for this week was only verses 1-7 through 7 and 17-19. through 19. My only intention with this was to avoid chopping out the middle section of a passage, for the sake of hearing the whole thing. However, it's worth noting, this psalm was basically written in the context of the aftermath of what happened after the passage in Isaiah. It is a lament as the people of God have been taken into captivity. In a completely reductionistic way, Ahaz and others failed to trust God and now the people of God are at the mercy of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Also of note, as pointed out by Erdman's, quote, the Hebrew word which literally means turn around occurs no less than four times in this song. End of quote. This, by the way, is the same way that repentance is described in scripture. To repent is to literally turn around. Now, I'm not suggesting God has anything to repent of, but the relational lens seems quite beautiful here. It seems something like, God, we've turned back to you. Please turn back to us. Romans 1, verses 1-7 through Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scripture. The gospel concerning God's Son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be Son of God, with power according to the Spirit of holiness, by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of God's name, including yourselves, who are being called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. of this passage probably seems familiar. Paul often starts his letters this way, but there are some things to point out in the relation to the readings this week. Paul sets himself in line with the prophets in the holy scriptures. In other words, I am just like Isaiah and we are generally talking about the same thing. Paul also interestingly says the gospel of God we probably normally think of it as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul also includes that God's son was a descendant of David, and he ends the greeting with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word grace is translated from the Greek charis, and the Hebrew greeting "shalom" or peace, also appears. You may be wondering why the beginning of a letter appears in the readings this week. Well, here's why. In this passage, Paul is doing everything possible to connect the work that God was doing through Christ to the rest of Scripture. Even to the point that he wove together the common greetings for both Hebrew people and Christians. This is even more significant when accounting for the fact that Paul was generally seen as the minister to the Gentiles, who probably didn't need the Hebrew connection for legitimacy. This is one whole big story, and it continues. and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. And now we are at the climax of this week's readings. The final prediction, which, this year, comes just days before the celebration of the birth of Jesus. In this passage, the issue of Mary being pregnant before having consummated the marriage with Joseph is elevated quite a bit. Let's dig into that a little bit. To start, we must be aware that those of us who are Westerners have no concept of the marriage arrangement of Mary and Joseph. At the time. One could argue the engagement agreement was even more binding than marriage for us today. Engagement was final, and in order to leave an engagement, one actually had to draw up divorce documents. So, to say Joseph and Mary weren't yet married doesn't really capture the essence of the situation. However, this passage makes it quite clear. They had not consummated the marriage yet, which makes a pregnancy extremely problematic. What this actually sets the table for is for us to see Joseph as well within his rights to leave Mary. That is to say, when we hear that Joseph is righteous because he was going to quietly leave Mary, we are, indeed, supposed to understand this as a perfectly just decision of the time. You could say, it was the right thing to do. Let's put a pin in that for a moment. We've already discussed the problems of interpretation of the word translated as virgin. I would only add that the Hebrew had already been translated to Greek at this point, so the misinterpretation was potentially already present. So let's look at it critically for a moment. The author of the book of Matthew, writing probably sometime after 70 AD, using the book of Mark as a source, is trying to justify Jesus as the Messiah. And so he looks at the Emmanuel prophecy and sees the mother of God with us is a virgin, which causes him to use that particular word in the description of Mary. Is that possible? Yes, I think that's possible. But does it change the broader purpose of the text? I don't think so. For some reason, we make a giant deal out of the word virgin here. Why? probably because we're obsessed with sex and also probably because that word appears in our creeds i honestly don't know either way and although i'm excited to keep learning about it i'm not sure it changes the meaning of this text there would seem to be at least two more important ideas in this text than virginity The first is that Mary bears the child of the Holy Spirit, and I'm not sure this idea is any less ridiculous if Mary is a virgin than it is if she isn't. Well, Mary has to be a virgin to prove the child actually belongs to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I don't think one thing has anything to do with the other. This passage is telling us that this child is something like a biological child of God. The second more important idea is Joseph's response. Because you have to remember, Joseph is actually the legitimation of Jesus within the Davidic line, not Mary. Without Joseph, Jesus cannot be the Messiah. And Joseph has proved to be completely justified if he were to quietly divorce Mary. But Joseph doesn't choose the just path. Joseph chooses the merciful path. Now who else do we know whose character is just but who more often lean towards the path of mercy? That's right, Jesus' daddy, yod hey vav hey. More than that, in the context of the readings this week, what does Joseph do here? Joseph finally does what Ahaz could not. Joseph has faith. The faith that so many others have failed to have. Joseph stays and adopts Jesus as his own. Now, it is important to know that in biblical times, adoption was at least as important as a sort of concept of biological children. In fact, for much of the Bible period, fathers had the choice to adopt or not their own biological children. So a father could just choose not to, and they weren't their child. Likewise, a father could adopt a child who wasn't their blood, and the child was the exact same as blood. So in a way, Joseph has faith that God will keep God's covenant to protect the Hebrew people. And with Jesus's adoption, the child of the divine falls into the Davidic bloodline. Okay, so now let me pause for a moment and say, I'm trying to explain the context of Joseph being able to make all the decisions in this story. For the record, the father alone having so much power was pretty messed up. I just want to make that clear. So now we can turn to my approach to the onslaught of information that accompanies careful exploration of Scripture. You know I love the research. You know I love the mountains of information. I even love the information that shakes me up. It helps me with my confirmation bias. So when something comes along that challenges something I've held as true for a long time, I actually lean into it because it moves me into an entirely different sphere. It moves me from truth to faith. And the Christian life isn't about truth, it's about faith. You all also know I love Kierkegaard. I love so much of what he said, but maybe nothing more than this, faith requires a leap. What he meant was that faith is not reasonable it is not logical. One cannot get to faith without jumping over the chasm of unknowing. And I can think of no more fitting concept for this time of year, where we talk about a virgin, but maybe not a virgin, but a virgin being impregnated by the Holy Spirit and the man who decided to just roll with all that. I want to leave you with one more bit of information before we move toward the closing. The name that is given to this child is Jesus, or Yeshua, which is adapted from Yoshua, which is the shortened version of Yehoshua. Yeshua is a combination of Yeh, an abbreviation of yod Hey vav Hey, and Shua, which was probably adapted from similar words, which ends up meaning a cry for help. Jesus is Yahweh's response to a cry for help. Emmanuel, God with us. You know the birth we celebrate in a couple of days really isn't about all the facts being in line. It's beautifully about the moment God descended to our level and joined us in this journey. God with us, as opposed to us going to be with God as in God with us as we wrestle with these tensions, as in God with us when we doubt, and as in God with us in our unbelief. That does it for this week's episode, and really, that almost does it for 2019. For that reason, I want to share a couple pieces of information with you. There won't be an episode next Monday, but I do have one more thing in store for 2019. Next Tuesday, on Christmas Eve, I'll release a mini-episode for Christmas. I'm going to do a reading of the Christmas story with original music behind it, but there won't be any reflection or really any words besides the Christmas story. So I wanted to explain now. It's just a little bonus because I know many people love the tradition of a Christmas story reading on Christmas Eve or Christmas. So look out for that next Tuesday the 24th. After that, I'm going to take a couple weeks off for the holidays and for rest. That means I'll miss all the Sundays of Christmas, Epiphany, and the baptism of Jesus. But I'll be back with an episode on January 13th and continue on from there. Because this is the end of the calendar year, I want to say thank you to all of you for listening and engaging. If you aren't aware, Postmodern Liturgy actually started this year, and I've been so thrilled with the growth and relationships that have developed because of it. If you've been listening for a bit, you know I went through a time where I didn't know if I'd be able to continue. I'm so thankful that I'm able to, and I'm thankful for all of you. In particular, I wanted to give a shout out to each one of my Patreon supporters. I don't get the feeling that any of them want any recognition, but I have to do something no matter how insignificant to express my thankfulness for your support. It is monetary, but it certainly isn't only monetary. So my deepest thanks to Alex, Katie, Barb, Alan, Brett, Emily, Brooke, Dakota, Megan, Emily, James, Emily, Joshua, Logan, Maddie, Mike, Amy, Mike, Nate, Nathan, Bob, and Sarah. Thank you to Jake Reber for your incredible help and support this year. Now, I know it seems like I'm accepting an award. No, I'm done with that. But seriously, thank you. If you're interested in our Pacific Northwest trip in May, make sure you visit the website and sign up. Click the Experiences tab on our website. I'm announcing the official dates and the deposit amount this week to those who have signed up. Deposits will lock you into your spot, so although no one has actually had the opportunity to do that yet, there are nine people signed up now, and I pretty much have to cap the trip at about 13. I'd love if you would join us online. We're at postmodernliturgy.com. We are at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram, and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. I'd also love it if you would consider supporting our work. You can do that for free by sharing and rating and reviewing the podcast or you can do that financially at patreon.com slash postmodern liturgy if you visit our patreon site you can see several great benefits for our supporters thanks again for joining me and enjoy the tension